0: It feels strange to say I love teaching about suffering and hope <laughs> because anytime I say I love teaching about suffering, that seems odd. Um, but I've gotten the chance to teach about suffering for many years now. Um, when I first started teaching at Ambrose, uh, my dean came to me and said, Would you like to teach a class on suffering? And I thought, <laughs> um, uh, Uh, I had said many years before when I was in university um, that I never, ever wanted to teach about suffering or talk about it, because for me, um, I began university with um, a murder of a family uh, that was close to our family, and that experience turned, just pushed me into a space where I didn't know, is there a God? Does God care? Uh, Does it matter to God that this terrible thing has happened? And it left me spinning for quite a long time. And so when I came back years later um, to have my dean ask me, will you teach about suffering? I said, I will teach about suffering on one condition. I want to teach a class on suffering and hope. Because what I want to do is to talk about how they're connected to each other. That in many ways in our experience in the world, it is not that we experience suffering and hope but we experience suffering and hope. Um, Often on top of each other, next to each other, beside each other, um, in the midst of each other. And so tonight I'm gonna be talking about how we see that in the book of Job. Uh, What does Job give us as a picture of suffering and hope? Um, What are the questions that Job uh, asks us to think about? And also what are some of the questions that Job is asked by God? and how does that affect how we think about what is suffering in our lives and where do we find hope? And so I hope that um I hope that along you'll come with me on that journey. Um I hope that it's helpful to you guys. Um and uh, let's so let's get started. So um my plan tonight is to talk about the entire book of Job. <laughs> so, um yeah, so, you know, Clark said that he talked a long time. I'm trying not to talk a really long time. Um, but I do think that actually the structure of the entire book actually tells us something unique about how we think about suffering and where hope is. Job, as a book, addresses some key questions that arise when we suffer. So, how do we respond when everything in our lives seems to be turned upside down? As certainly the experience for Job. How do we make sense of grief, pain, suffering? And is hope possible when everything seems lost? And so I'm going to try and think about these questions with you as we talk about suffering and hope in Job, starting off with what happens in Job? Like, what is the structure of Job and why does that matter? Then we're going to explore suffering in Job, um, and we're going to explore where is hope found in Job? And I'm going to suggest that in some ways, Job offers us a surprising version of hope that is probably not what Job even expected that he wanted. It isn't given what he asks for. He's given something else that actually offers him. So we'll we'll come to that. But let's start with Job's journey. The book of Job is based around a series of dialogues. But we can also talk about how the Job is framed at the beginning and the end. So Job begins and ends with these very similar kinds of structures. You've got a prologue that sets the scene and there's a conversation that happens between God and the accuser. The word accuser, Satan, is where we get the the word Satan from. Um, I'll refer to this as the accuser because that's what it means. Um, But this is where we get kind of that language from. And God and Satan are having this conversation. Job is righteous. We know that from the very beginning. And Job loses everything. He loses his family. His, His children die. He loses his home. He loses his health. And the core of the book is asking... How do we respond when that happens? we're gonna talk a little bit about the friends, I quote in quotation marks, friends speeches. Um, We'll talk about how they start off as friends. Are they friends by the end of the book? (laughs) Maybe not so much, Um, (laughs) but we have these cycles with the friends and the way that the book works is a back and forth dialogue. Each of the friends takes a turn saying why they think Job is suffering. And Job responds again and again to his friends. Then we move into a space where there's a whole conversation about wisdom. And we, we know that in the middle of suffering, one of the questions is, how do we find a guidepost? How do we find a path? And so Job is asking, where is wisdom found in the middle of my suffering?" Job has a final speech, then another guy shows up for no apparent reason that we can figure out why, but he just shows up, his name is Elihu, and then Job and the Lord have an encounter. And I say a dialogue, but really it's an encounter, and we'll talk a little bit about that encounter. The epilogue is the happy ending, I always feel like I should put that in quotes, because while everything is returned to Job, I don't know about you, but if I lost my children, having a new set of children, does it replace those children? Yes? So yes, he gets back family. Yes, he gets back home and wealth and his property. But I often ask the question, what lingers for Job? So at first, we begin with Job, um, not actually in the narrative itself, but being talked about. God and the accuser have a dialogue about Job. And when Job loses everything at the start of the book, his first reaction is calm morning, and even to praise God despite the intensity of the suffering he experiences. But sometimes people stop here, and they sort of say, and that's what Job did. That's how he responded to God. He was calm and reasonable, which is not true. <laughs> that is only his first response. As we continue through the book, he gets increasingly more and more and more upset. Crying out to God, calling out to God, asking why God even let him be born in the first place. And so while Job's response is not his wife's response, his wife's response is curse God and die. Job doesn't do that. But he does respond in sadness. He does respond in anger. And he does respond in dialogue with God, asking God, why? Job's friends, uh, we know a little bit about them. They seem to be from neighboring areas. And I actually think if all we had was Job 2 as a part of the book, I'd say these are great friends. Job's in pain, and his friends come, and they sit, and they mourn with Job. That's a really good response. It's just, after a while, they hit a spot where they stop mourning with Job, and start accusing Job. Which is not as good a response. And so they move from co-mourning with their friend, to condemning their friend. By Job 3, Job has lost his patience. He curses the day of his birth noticeably he does not curse God so while his wife says let's Cur- just curse God and and die we never see job curse God we see job pretty upset angry sad calling out to God we see job cursing the day of his own birth but not cursing God this language uh, of job talking about the curse of the day of his birth, seems connected to the language in Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a very similar response. Job uses this language where peace has been lost, quiet has been lost, rest has been released as chaos takes over his world. Job uses this language because chaos is all that he can see in these moments. And I know that some of us may have experienced times where struggle, pain, grief, and suffering has meant we have gone sleepless nights, where we have felt like the world has been turned into chaos, where the things that were quiet and restful feel like they're gone. And that's the space where we meet Joe. When we look at the majority of the book, the core of the book is increasing condemnation by Joe's friends. All three think they have the theological answer for Job. The theological answer seems pretty obvious. And anyone who read the book of Deuteronomy knows the answer. Deuteronomy says there are two paths. A path towards life, a path towards destruction. If you're experiencing suffering, his friends say, you must have picked the path towards destruction. You must have picked sin. So just say you sinned, God will forgive you, and your suffering will go away. Seems theologically reasonable. Even seems biblical. But I'll note that that argument, at the end of this book, God actually says that's not what they should have done. In fact, he judges the friends for this theological argument. Judges them pretty harshly. The friends go even further, particularly Bildad, who uh, argues that not just Job is the problem, but Job's kids are also the problem. So if it's not Job who is wicked, his kids must be wicked. Interestingly enough, at the beginning of the book, at the very start, when we hear about Job's righteousness, we actually hear him talking about how he prays for his kids and if any sin. He, like, he repents of any sin they might have done. And then later we get to a spot where they're like, it must be your kid's sin. Um, In every response, Job replies by saying he's righteous, and that what has happened to him is not equivalent to anything that he has done. Now, as observers in reading the book, we know that to be true, based on reading the book. Job is angry at the accusations from his friends. He's angry at the way God has treated him. He responds in a second speech talking about his own smallness and how he longs for a mediator who will come and speak on his behalf. Because the people who are closest to him, who should be speaking on his behalf, instead are condemning. Job also calls out in a psalm of lament, crying out to God in his pain. Job's third speech is an argument as he argues his case before the Lord. He wants the Lord to know that actually he's been acting righteously. Why is this happening to him? Something interesting when we compare the speeches of Job compared to the speeches of Job's friends is that Job actually doesn't give us new information. What Job gives us is a cry for the pity of God. Job calls for a witness in heaven, believing, he believes that there is a witness in heaven for him. And he longs to have this redeemer stand and mediate for him. And this shift we get as we get closer to the end of the book, we get Job's speeches doing something different as we continue to hear him speak. By the end, closer to the end of the book, by chapter 19, Job has moved from calling or longing for a redeemer to believing that his redeemer lives and will rescue him. We don't know where this vision comes from for Job, but Job has come to believe that God himself will come and be a redeemer for him. And so God, who might have been the antagonist, Job is believing him to be the redeemer, that God is for him. But in the midst of it, he talks about how he is longing to see God. He is longing to experience God's presence. And this is a call he has. He talks about it even in his death, He has the hope that he will see God and experience it. The New Testament picks up on this specific language in multiple places from Job. Matthew 28, six uses this language, "My, my redeemer lives. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. And so that language, my redeemer lives in Job becomes a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Peter uh, 1 to 18, Peter is encouraging a church that is struggling, that is experiencing um, persecution. And he says, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This language of silver or gold and the language of redeeming Uh, picks up on the language that we see in Job as well in this section. As we continue throughout this section and Job responds, he turns to the power of God. And he keeps leaning into God as his friends offer him nothing. I want to take a second to think about what this is like for Job. Most of the book is a set of friends accusing and accusing and accusing for chapter after chapter after chapter. And you can imagine this as conversation after conversation after conversation. You can hear their voices rise as they get more and more direct, more and more judgmental as the time goes on. And we can actually hear it kind of rising in the language they use as we go through the book. They get more and more intense and more and more calling on Job. Just do it. Just say you sinned. Just Um, because they're so frustrated. And in the meantime, Job is leaning more and more trying to lean into God. But we're waiting for God to show up and respond. For chapters and chapters and chapters. Job 28, Job starts to look for wisdom. And this is part of this bigger idea that wisdom, where wisdom is, is where God is. And he looks for wisdom everywhere. Like, all the different places you can look for it. Like, digging in the ground. Like, underneath the ground. Maybe maybe it's, like, where you find silver and gold. Go find wisdom. And wisdom isn't found there. And instead, the chapter ends with the idea that wisdom is found in God. In the final address to his friends, he pleads his case again. Elihu comes in as a debate, what is happening with this Alihu guy? He comes in, he talks to him. Um, not exactly clear how Elihu fits in the story. He also isn't addressed at the end of the book. but uh, But anyways, he comes in and he talks to him as well. And now we come to the moment in the book. The very, very end of the book that we have been waiting for and waiting for. And that longing to see God that we heard about earlier in the book actually comes. But what we expect, if we are Joe, is that God's gonna show up and he's gonna answer those questions, yes? I mean, we've been waiting. It's chapter 38. We have been waiting for 37 chapters. God's surely gonna show up and give all the answers, yes? clarify theological misunderstandings make a clear explanation for why this has happened that'll be satisfying. Yes, that's what we want the book to be. I would like, I would like, At times, when I first read the book, I was like, so we're going to end with like a theological explanation, right? Why is there suffering? Why did this happen to Job? That will help me with my struggles and my pain. That would be great. That is not what we get, everyone. But what we get is actually really helpful. What we get is a theophany. So a theophany comes from two words, theos, meaning God, and thenin, which means to show. It is when God shows up, God reveals himself. We have uh, examples of theophany throughout the Old Testament. God shows up to Jacob through a ladder uh, from the heavens. Uh, There's like angels that come up and down and like the presence of God comes. And And then Jacob like fights with the God, this angel, he wrestles God. It's interesting. Um, then we also have places like Isaiah and Ezekiel where the calling for these prophets comes with God showing them some picture of himself. They're escorted into the throne room of God. They stand before the throne and they see a lot of crazy weird creatures and lots of other crazy weird sounds and smoke and other things. And in that moment, they experience God's presence and it helps them to know who they are what they should do. It clarifies their calling and it answers those key questions for them. So it allows them to move forward. When God shows up in Job, he doesn't show up in a throne room. He throws up, he shows up in a storm, in the middle of a world. And I think this is really striking Because this is not light coming down from the heavens in a clear and beautiful way. This is not uh, a beautiful throne room scene. This is a storm. When we think about what we've seen of Job so far, this is what his life has been. Yes? The storm? A whirlwind? And yet this is where God chooses to meet Job. In the whirlwind, God speaks to Job about God's power over creation and his governance. Michael Thompson, in his book, um, Where is the God of Justice, says the following. Rather than hearing any words from God, Job has in fact seen God himself. The encounter with God himself is essential for what happens next. So I mentioned that what we expect are God's answers. Yes, this is what we want. This is what we anticipated. We've been reading for chapters waiting for these answers. Do you know what God does? He asks questions. And lots of them chapters of questions and in fact there's a phrase that repeats from the mouth of God to Job I will question you and you shall answer me in a book all about Job asking God for answers God three times repeats Actually, no, this isn't how this is going to work. I'm going to ask you questions, and you are going to answer me, Job. That is not probably what Job expected. He asked some questions like, where were you when the universe was created? Do you know how the universe was, became what it is? Do you know who it is? There's a lot of these questions. The answer is that job doesn't know the answer to these questions just like we don't know the answers to these questions in fact in a book that's all about talking the whole book is dialogues people yes job is nearly speechless because Je- because god has asked a whole series of questions and job is like i don't have the answers to these questions The Lord pushes this one step further. Where did Job like to be God for a day? This is like a Bruce Almighty kind of scenario. Like, um, would you like to have the experience of being me for a day? Um, Usually most of us should say no to that question. Um, In the midst of this uh, time, what we see is God taking Job around creation. Some have described this almost like picking up Job and then like turning him and moving him all over creation. Look at this thing, look at this thing, look at this thing, look at this thing. And it feels like he moves like everywhere from like up in the heavenlies to the earth, down under the earth, around the earth to show all the sides of creation to Job and ask Job questions about every side of creation of the world. In the midst of this, God says that he creates creatures of chaos. The behemoth, which was a large land animal, I don't know, rhino, hippo, some kind of big, large animal that was scary, that could hurt you. Elephant, I don't know. We don't know. We know it's a big animal that was scary and was seen as kind of a chaos being. And Leviathan, which was the equivalent, but underwater. So, like a big whale, maybe big shark, some kind of big sea creature that was scary and was known for taking ships down that went into the more dangerous parts of the water. These two creatures are among the chaos creatures that people during Job's time thought of as the most dangerous things in creation. My favorite part of this section of Job is that uh, God says, not only did he create them, that he tames them. And he describes the Bohemoth like a little cute little dog. Like, you know, those little dogs you put in your purse? Like, he like puts a little, like, little thing on his neck, like those little collars, and he just like walks them around. And the point is that what we perceive as so chaotic and dangerous, God actually understands and orders. In the last speech of Job, we see that he has been impacted by the encounter with God. He is back in dust and ashes, a sign that he is uh, in a sense responding in mourning, like lament, He's just, like rips his clothes. And he realizes how small he is in comparison to God. The big questions that God has asked him are beyond his measure, his ability to even think of these questions. All of the creation he has seen is beyond what Job can comprehend. And he is aware of how small he is in the bigness of God. I think of this sometimes similar to, have you ever had that experience where you have gone out on a night It is very, very dark outside somewhere where there is not a lot of city lights and you can see the stars. And if you go somewhere where you can see a lot of the stars, that sense of how small we are and how big the rest of creation is. My son uh, loves, loves everything to do with astronomy, like everything has a really, really giant um, telescope is like the size of my son <laughs> i'm not exaggerating it's like as tall as i am and my husband carts it in the in their car and drives it out so that they can go and look at all, mm-hmm. everything saturn so, <laughs> to come home and he's like i saw joe R.
1: he's
0: like super <laughs> excited and he comes home and a lot of times my son atticus his response to me is it's so Big. It's amazing.
1: It's so much. We don't even
0: see all of it. And there's this awe and wonder. And I think about what it must have been like for Job to be reoriented to the overwhelming awe and wonder of all that is more, bigger and more than we can comprehend. So where does this leave us with suffering and hope? The book of Job doesn't come up with a single answer to the question of suffering. But it does give us some places to start. Job is innocent. We know this from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. The point of the book is that Job is innocent. And what has happened to him is not fair. That the punishment he has experienced or the suffering he has experienced does not match with the life that he has led of righteousness. And he writes in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, says that one way to read Job is as a massive protest against any blanket analysis that good happens to good people and bad happens to bad people. That doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes correlations, but part of the point of the book is that if the simple answer is bad came to you because you were bad, and that's the answer we are giving, whether to ourselves or to others, That's an incomplete answer. Similarly, if good stuff's happening to me, I'm just not necessarily meaning it because I've been good. But in the case of Job, part of the point is that Job is protesting this belief that what has happened to him was deserved. And this is very important, I think. I don't know how many of you have had this experience through your lives. The amount of times I've sat with people who have been through immense Mm -hmm. suffering and had people tell them that it was their fault Mm -hmm. and what it did to them that people said that to the lasting effect of those words, we need a book like joke. Because it helps us not only as we think of our own experiences, but when we sit with others that our first instinct is not assume that someone has brought this on themselves. God answers Job by not answering Job. Job. What God gives Job is a picture of, him, of God as creator. God who is sovereign, God who has power to create, life and death, God who has knowledge. Job 42 speaks of how things are put right on earth for Job and his friends, and speaks about the ways that God's ways are higher than Job can understand. This bigness of God, this fullness of God, may be an answer that some find encouraging. It might not. But it is certainly part of the answer that Job receives. if we think of it as an answer. Again, it's a set of questions. But to the degree that it shows Job something, it shows that Job ultimately does not understand. It also reminds us that sometimes our friends are wrong. Even the people who know us best can sometimes actually in our suffering let us down. Sometimes they might have a reason they think something's happened to us and they don't actually know the big picture. I actually really appreciate a book where friends don't get it right. Because that's actually what most of us experience is people that don't get it right. Yes? Sometimes we're the friend who didn't get it right also. Right? And so part of this ability to think about what happens when our friends fail us in the midst of our suffering. Where Job goes when his friends fail him is to lean hard into God. And I actually think that this sounds super, almost cliche and simple, but actually is all really hard to do sometimes in the middle of that hurt. Mm -hmm. There is a hope in the vastness of God. (laughs) Worship and wisdom are joined to each other as hope is found in a reverence to God in the midst of suffering. One of my friends is a scientist. Um, he is a biologist. He loves fish. I mean, really loves fish. Like he'll talk to you about fish for a very long time. You have to stop him from talking to you about fish. Um, and one of the things I love though, uh, he and I are working on a book together. We've been talking for a while about like how, what is what does science do? I think about it. One of the things I really appreciate is the way in which he is constantly in awe of what he says that he experiences this sense of God's presence in a stinky fish. <laughs> yeah? Because he is constantly learning more about this fish, these fish, how they live, where they go, what what does this look like, how do their bodies work, what's, what's the process that the fish becomes like this kind of fish and not that kind of fish, what is that, how does that work? And in it, he sees a piece of this big picture of God who created the world that helps him to come to a kind of reverence for God and I feel like I've learned something by sitting with him as he has explored this he reminds me to look at the world with wonder Mm -hmm. and to see God in it even when I have a hard time because I am in the middle of my pain The answer in Job's in Job's story is not a theological one primarily. In fact, as I said, God gives questions, not answers. What Job is satisfied by is an encounter with God. His friends try to give him a theological answer. Yes, that is unsatisfying. As it is untrue. God meets him in the storm that he's in. And when he experiences God's presence, everything changes. And so theodicy, the search for God's justice in the face of suffering, gives way to theophany, the experience of God showing up and saying, I'm here. That God is with us in our storm. That God is not far away, but is here. Is in itself a kind of answer. An answer that grants hope. Even when we don't have all of the other theological answers to give. H.H. Rowley puts it this way. The book of Job falls short of an intellectual solution of the problem of suffering. But it achieves the spiritual miracle of wrestling of profit from suffering through the enrichment of the fellowship of God. The book doesn't answer the intellectual question that we have. Where did evil come from? Why do we suffer? The book doesn't tell us especially a book where you kind of hope that's what the answer's going to be. Instead, God fellowships with us in our pain. He meets Job there in the storm. And that is a kind of answer. Even if it's not the theological and intellectual one that we might want. The ultimate message of Job is that we don't know We don't know the answer. And we might never know, especially because kind of the point of the book is that God is more than we can even understand. But let us rejoice in the beauty of the world. That beauty that God revealed to Job, chapter upon chapter, I see toward him through creation. Though its pattern is only partially revealed to us,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. it's enough to know that the dark mystery encloses and in part discloses a bright and shining miracle. Job reminds us, encourages us that our redeemer lives and that he longs to be close to us. And we don't have to get past our pain or our suffering to be near to God. If he wants to meet us in it. Okay. Here you go, guys.
2: But I just want to say thank you, Beth, so much for, for that talk. And just, whoops. Um, just. uh exposing us to the fullness of Job, particularly that that essential part in the end. What was remarkable to me was thinking about how, like Jesus, Job's uh, God is. Because you would think the one through whom all things were made comes into our midst. The disciples are ready to ask him questions, and he spends most of his ministry after waiting 30 years, asking. and he asks questions. He asks questions after questions, and in the end, he doesn't, uh, his theodicy is through theophany on the cross. Yeah. He shows us himself on the cross, Absolutely. not necessarily answering our questions through a rational discourse, but through his suffering and his resurrection. So I just thought that, that was an interesting parallel.
0: Yeah. You know, so there's been really interesting books about Jesus and his riddling, that a lot of what Jesus does is actually like ask questions mm-hmm. and even put forward riddles to draw people to himself. Um there's some really interesting ones. I always like the one, I always like the one like, you know, Nicodemus comes up at night and, <laughs> and God says, in order to be like Jesus says, in order to be um born again, like you have to be born again, right? And Nicodemus is like, so I gotta go back in the womb. <laughs> like, huh? <laughs> Which is weird. Um, if you really think about it, it's a really weird phrase, right? Like, you have to be born again, and you're an adult. Anyways, um, and this idea that Jesus frequently is asking questions, but we see how he asks questions because it draws people to him. And, and some people who only want an answer from Jesus, and Jesus doesn't give it to them, leave. And sometimes Jesus gives weird answers. Like, um, if you want to be a part of me, you got to eat my flesh. I always like to, in class, like, walk up to people and be like, here, take a bite, <laughs> otherwise leave the class, and just see what happens, because mostly people go, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, but this there's an interesting thing about Jesus' presence with the people, with the disciples, and what they expected of him, and what he actually did, and the way in which he, being God with us in flesh, was itself how he reveals who God is, and his willingness to do that, both coming into our suffering, suffering himself, and then offering life mm-hmm. abundant, and so I think it's really powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just what you've said is kind of, um, raised a question, I mean, um, about metaphor versus literal suffering yeah and I I have a friend I guess we probably all have friends who are going through very very hard times yes and and uh and he is reading the book of Job mm-hmm. but in, my question in the back of my mind is saying yes but Job is a metaphor and 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 you are suffering in reality mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering you know with your back yeah um, sure, you know, in, yeah. in, in different genres of yes. literature, what is the significance? Because I, th- I think it's deeply meaningful. Yeah. Uh, still, but uh, how mm-hmm. does that change for you, the metaphor versus
0: Paul in prison as a historical person?
1: Yeah. Jesus on the cross.
0: Yeah, so, like, if we don't read Job as, like, a historical figure, does it change how we read this book, right? Um, I'll say this, Sometimes we distinguish metaphor from, say, history or fact. And one of the struggles with that is that the way metaphors work is they actually tap into real experience. So how do we know when we see something like um, God is a father? Like, well, how do we understand what fathering is? Well, we tap into real experiences that we've had to try and understand that when Jesus describes himself as the vine, well, we don't think Jesus is literal vegetation. Like he's not physically a stalk, right? But by using that image of something we are familiar with, a physical thing that we have touched and seen, I mean, I'm not sure all of you've touched vines, but you're in Victoria, so maybe you have. (laughs) Um, By doing that, it actually taps into something real for us. And so one of the things I always like to say is that metaphor is not less true for not being historical or not necessarily being like, it's not fact in the same way, but it is actually based on um, our experiences of life. Um, And and it's part of where where its truth is grounded. So whether Job is a historical figure that was at a particular time or not, what Job does for us is allows us to walk with someone experiencing a kind of loss. And through doing that, it allows us to explore how do we as how do we experience our own losses. When I read a novel about a character, and she she draws me in, and I hear her story, and I walk with her through whatever story she has been through, suddenly she becomes real to me, and my life and her life are joined to each other. That she Maybe historical or not historical doesn't actually change that process, and so I think that whether we read this book as more literary or we read it like you know, more like a metaphor or an allegory or something like that, or we read it more like a historical story about a real person, that it taps—it's tapping into the real stories because even if there is no historical joke whether we agree with that or not whatever you guys think in the room it's fine either direction from my perspective there are real people who have lost their children there are real people who have lost their homes there are real people who have experienced chronic pain or disease and ask god where are you why and job gives us an uh, a space within scripture to come to those questions. And so that's kind of how I how I how I think about that. Yeah.
1: In
3: in that vein, I I've, I've read that uh, the story of Job was written as a play to be performed. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I just wonder how you'd respond to that. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a great <laughs> question. Um, so there's lots of things in Job that feel like performance. Mm-hmm. Part of it is, as I mentioned, it's very dialogue-driven. So whereas some um Some of the writings that we get in other parts of the Old Testament are like an oracle where you've got someone getting up and like giving a speech. Or it's like a historical where you've got people like interacting in history or events or wars or whatever. Um, Or you've got stories like Abraham where you're like watching the story unfold. Job is really interesting because most of it is talking. Which, what is the, what is the genre that has most people getting up and talking? (laughs) A play, right? And one thing to think about is how these things worked in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, um, most of what we have that's written down wasn't originally written down. Mm -hmm. It was originally performed in some way. So sometimes performed in the sense that people would uh, tell a story, like everyone would gather around and you could hear the story of good old Abraham or you know from Hagar's perspective, maybe not so good old Abraham, but, um, but Abraham, nonetheless. Um, and and in some other situation, you'd hear like Exodus 15 and someone would be singing, right? The horse and the rider thrown into the sea, right? And in this case, it feels like potentially it could have been performed. Um, And again, in the ancient world, that would actually be pretty common that either someone would be performing it more like a storyteller performs or that it could be potentially performed more like a play would be performed. Um, Certainly, that explains some of the ways the writing seems to work um, and the framework of the overall book, which is very different than some of our other books. So it's not necessarily a slam dunk. that's definitely what it is, but it certainly leans in that direction in a lot of ways. And people who do more performance approaches uh, have a lot of great things to say about how Job works. So. You.
3: Yeah. Um, I, one thing I've often struggled with relating to Job is because he's righteous mm-hmm. through and through. And I think all of us would agree none Of us are righteous. Um, yeah. I guess the only one righteous was Jesus, so I need to think that Jesus might have seen himself as Job while on the earth, especially as, mm. as he approached mm-hmm. the cross,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and also how that relates to our hope. Yeah, if in fact we aren't righteous, and who knows, mm-hmm. I can't stand before God and say that I'm fully vindicated by my own righteousness, mm-hmm. and therefore,
0: why does this happen
1: to me? So, to speak there?
0: yeah, it's a really good point. Well, let me let me step to the side for a second and come back to your question. That's okay. Because what I want to say is that there's there's lots of places throughout scripture where those who are uh, righteous experience suffering. So it's not just in Job, Um, it is also in the Psalms. There's a theme in the Psalms of the righteous sufferer. Now in those situations, it's not that they're purely righteous, they have never done anything. Mm -hmm. It's that the, the punishment they're experiencing or the violence or the suffering they're experiencing does not match. With anything that they have done. And so there's a distinction drawn. And this is not to say like you have to be a hundred percent righteous to believe that this isn't a one-to-one. So like if you're not a hundred percent righteous, then the bad that you had come had that came to you is because you were bad. Mm-hmm. Is everyone following me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are things that happen to us that have that have that are not connected to bad we have done. There are things that are like consequences of bad we've done sometimes. Right. So I think about situations like, um, if I am regularly increasing drug use over time, will that have effect on my body? Yes. 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 Is that a consequence that comes from the activity that I'm doing? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, There's very complicated reasons why someone might be increasing drugs over time that are not first and foremost and always sin. could be lots of other things that are in their lives that have caused that to happen. But is there going to be a consequence to a natural action that I have? In some situations, yes. But there are also situations that happen to people, and we know this, that they do not in any way create because there's also violence and wickedness and hurt in the world. When I I, say I'm a first responder for sexual assault, that's something that I do at Ambrose. I'm trained to sit with people who have experienced sexual violence. Hmm. Sometimes when I sit with someone, they tell me about when they were five.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, when you're five, are you 100% innocent? I, have you hung out with five year old <laughs> <laughs> okay, But is there anything in me that would say that because that five year old isn't one hundred percent innocent, that they deserve what happened to them? Absolutely. And so I think that when we're thinking about job in these ways, I think that's where I'm trying to get to with it. is not that we have that it's hundred percent righteousness. therefore, um, maybe more that there are a lot of times when we start assuming, in many situations, people start by assuming sin when we might start by assuming a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's not just our sin, it's other sin as well. That we live in systems of mm-hmm. sin and violence mm-hmm. and oppression, hurt, and a lot of other things. Like that. So now, Jesus is interesting because you brought that up. So, Jesus is a righteous sufferer. In fact, tomorrow, part of what I'm going to talk about is this idea of Jesus, the righteous sufferer. One of the things that's interesting about Jesus is that he casts the story of Christians as suffering like he suffers. And in that, he doesn't start by saying, You're going to suffer because you're going to sin. Instead, he says, you will suffer for righteousness righteousness' sake. Which means that he assumes that even among his disciples, and we've read about his disciples, they are not perfect people,
1: mm.
0: right? That when they experience suffering, it won't first and foremost be because they deserve it in some way, but because they actually are trying to walk a life that looks like Jesus. And so I think um, that's where I kind of go with that. I think, um, I think, uh, and do I think there's like a Job to Jesus? I think it's interesting. Jesus has a lot of like parallels in a lot of different books. Um, there's times when he's paralleled to the different figures throughout uh, the Old Testament. Um, David, obviously, is one that we get a lot. Um, but Job, quite possibly. Um, certainly a righteous sufferer in the same way. And so, yeah i see a hand back there. Hi. Yeah, no, thank
1: you so much. So you were responding in terms of, um, to the last question regarding righteousness and suffering caused by sin. Um, I know that Dr. John Walton has talked a lot about, like, non-order disorder mm-hmm. and okay. order and how a lot of the suffering that Job was experiencing was also just meaningless suffering yeah. like a tsunami or a a fire might be it, okay, yeah. would that map on also to what you were talking about even in terms of the general applications of um it, I think Dr. Bolton takes it a little bit of a different perspective than you did yeah um again, you just- no, no,
0: absolutely I think that there's I think that one of the things is that there's a lot of things that happen in the world that are like disordered the world disordered right um that's another thing we're seeing in joke so we're seeing a mix of things in joke some of the things seem to have order to them some disorder certainly there's chaos as a big part of the themes of joke um we mentioned that a little bit i mentioned that a little bit when we we're talking about like the, the chaos monsters basically um and so yeah no i think walton's on the right track with that um i think the idea that sometimes there's also things that happen that seem to be like we don't know what the meaning is of Right. Um, and we're often trying to find out, like, well, what's the meaning of this suffering? And what I what I say, one of the things that I teach, as I mentioned, I teach a whole class on this. And one of the things I say at the start of the class is that this is not a class um, where I tell you why suffering is or why evil is. Because the Bible actually doesn't tell us that mm-hmm. Right. it's it is not primarily about where does it come from, but what God is going to do about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true in this book as well. There's lots of things in it that are unexplained and actually, if anything, like de-explained. Like they're like flipped on them side, they're on themselves, right? It's like a whole bunch of questions at the end. Um, but actually I think in some ways the idea that um what we have is what how God will respond to those things rather than an answer to like why are they there. Um so I think, yeah, I think that maybe kind of connects with what you're talking about. Thanks. I saw your hand as
3: well. You know, I was going to say, you know, you talk about Jesus, Jesus on the cross, and you talk mm-hmm. about hope and suffering, and Jesus on the cross is saying, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. But I think if we were done at the modern church, we wouldn't say that. We'd say Psalm 22, because I think when he is saying that, it, it's, it's, everybody around him is Jewish, except for the odd centurion, I guess. And so, but when you read through Psalm 22, it looks like God is absent in this. But Jesus is really saying God is, is present in all of this.
0: So really, so, so, yeah. so there's
3: hope. You're going through mm-hmm. suffering. But then you see within that suffering on the cross, there's the hope that God is with him.
0: So this is a really interesting question. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first verse of Psalm 22. Is he referencing the whole Psalm?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or is he calling out to God, asking God, who are you? Is he doing both? So actually, come tomorrow,
1: <laughs> um,
0: I will. I'm actually one. I have a whole section actually tomorrow where I'll be talking about that because I actually think it's a really interesting question. The reason that I I pose it as a question is I think we like to make it really like Jesus only felt hope. And I would argue that we have a lot of evidence that Jesus didn't only feel hope. Mm-hmm.
3: Gethsemane.
0: Gethsemane. Where Jesus is so overwhelmed that he asked God to take this cup from him. And so, I'm not disagreeing that that's certainly, like, Psalm 22, you certainly can. I'm going to talk about this, like, the you structure of lament, um, and how when Psalm 22 has this really big, like, it's like, really goes down, 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 and then goes really high up. It's like one of the ones that gets like, goes lament, 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 praise. Um, (laughs) And and so depending upon whether we think, does Jesus land lament, 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 or does he land lament, 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 praise, which of those is he doing, affects how we think about um, what's happening on the cross in that particular setting in Matthew and Matthew. Yeah,
3: from suffering to heart.
0: Yeah. Is he moving from suffering to hope in that moment? Or is he, or is he in the midst of the lament? And hope is going to come, but is not there yet. So good question. Yeah.
2: I have a couple of questions from the chat. Sure, yeah. They're trying to jump in. Uh, one person said, can you please give more examples of how God shows up in a dark time?
0: Uh, do they mean in Job or do they mean just in general?
2: I think they mean in general
0: so we have quite a few places actually where we see god showing up throughout for sure um i think about well let's talk about for example we can talk about isaiah it's a great example um in the book of isaiah we have the people in the middle of isaiah starting in first in chapters 20 That's right, chapter 40 like section 40 to 55 um we have a section sometimes called second isaiah it's kind of in the section where the people are in exile and in their exile um, they are longing for God to come and meet them. And um, Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people. And there's a sense of God coming into their space, into their storm, um, and and wanting to give them comfort. When we look at the book of Ezekiel, we have something really interesting. So Ezekiel is a pretty heavy, intense book. I don't know if any of you have read it recently. first 33 chapters are like, wow that's a lot of blood um it's really it's really intense but what's really interesting about it is that in the book the people have been taken to exile and they anticipate that because their temple the place where they met god is destroyed that god is not with them in exile they've gone to this foreign land they're like God, God, God isn't with us. They have this real question: Is God here? And there's a scene where God leaves the temple and goes into exile with the people. Which is just like a really profound thing. That God becomes an exiled God to be with his people in their pain. And so We get several places like this. And I think even, you know, to your point, Psalms like Psalm 22, where the beginning of the psalm talks about these deep places like, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from seeing me in my pain? And we see, and yet God comes. And in Psalm 22, there's this idea, God doesn't forget the poor, the heartbroken that God will come and redeem them. And so we have this this repeated in many places throughout the Old Testament. um, And I think uh, to Clark's point, I think we have it repeated in Jesus. In the time when Jesus comes, the people are in the midst of a very dark season. They have been under foreign oppression for a very long time. And they are asking the question, does God even see us anymore? when Jesus comes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as we think about that, it, it actually echoes with what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The God who sees. I'd also like to point out that God sees even the people who are not Israel. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Hagar earlier, kind of made a passing slam on Abraham for a second. Um, But Hagar, the slave woman of Abraham and Sarah, she is a slave, she's an Egyptian, she is all the things that should not get the attention of God theoretically, if God's criteria was people in power and people who were the chosen people. She's none of those things. But when she ends up in the desert, God shows up, sees her, and she's the first person to name God. And the name that she gives is, he is the God who sees me. And so when we think about uh, what are these spaces, sometimes they're the spaces of, you know, Israel um, encountering God, and sometimes they're the surprising figures that aren't even of Israel, that God comes and shows up in their pain, in their fear. So, yeah.
2: Great. And so um, there's two more questions. I'm going to ask them both back to back because they're similar and they actually extend this question uh, to a more practical and personal level. Not just,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it says, uh, there's this is the first question. There's hope in this story because it shows that God is close. Mm-hmm. Can you share more about this from a practical perspective mm-hmm. when working with someone who is in the moment of intense suffering?
1: Yeah.
2: That's the first. The mm-hmm. second one is somewhat like the second. Uh, first, please say something about watching and enduring loved ones suffer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What do you do as you watch them suffer? And people ask the inevitable question of why is this happening to them as they are such righteous people? um so change the storyline in job that instead of job's wife saying curse god and die to job asking god and his friends as to why his wife is suffering which she doesn't deserve
1: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah okay those are related questions but now i've got two questions so let me try and remember the two um first question practical situations where i'm sitting with people so um I've been doing different kinds of, I'd say, somewhere between like counseling spaces. I did counseling as part of my master's degree. And I find that I get a lot of people besides my training in um, working in, as I mentioned, a first responder kind of space. I also work in churches. Um, so I've sat with a lot of people who've been through a lot of different kinds of trauma experiences. I am very aware that in many situations, I encourage them to get more help than I offer. Um, but I do sit with people, kind of in those, and sometimes I'm the first one that someone tells some of these stories to. Especially my students often share pretty hard things with me. Um, one of the things I say is that we are often very quick to try to give answers, mm-hmm. and in many situations, sitting with someone and being present is actually an answer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when someone is hurting, being present and caring and listening and letting them have the space to share the way that they need to share is itself actually being God's image, Christ's presence, Holy Spirit's presence with that person. So I think that one of the things is that sometimes what we want is the right answer with someone. When what they want often is actually someone to sit with them in the storm, to meet them in the storm, and to love, to show love and compassion and care. And so, it's not a it's not a uh, it's practical, but it's not telling you here's five steps, right? Um, but I do think that one of the things that I have found is that I sit with people and I I walk with them at their pace. So part of the other thing that we like to do. So We like to jump to hope because sometimes we're actually uncomfortable with their pain. And this is actually, I think, one of the most important things that I learned in this whole time of, you know, it's years, many years now, sitting with people over 20 years now, sitting with people in really hard spaces who um, are in a lot of pain um, is to wait. And to wait and to be aware of when I want to jump ahead Mm -hmm. and when I want them to already not be sad and already not be Mm -hmm. crying or already not be hurting or shaking in front of me because I am struggling with their pain and it's making me uncomfortable. So I want to progress their pain to something better. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because they have asked that of me, but because I want it because I am uncomfortable. And so one of the things that we learn in part of the kind of counseling training is to become aware of the moments when I am pushing things forward because I feel like I need to, rather than actually receiving and listening, what is this person actually asking?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the most important things that I say to people, and it's super simple. What do you need right now? Mm-hmm. What, what would be helpful to you in this moment? And then I listen and try to do what they say. Sometimes they say, I just need a Kleenex. And then I like hand them a Kleenex. I make sure I have like two boxes on either side of my desk. Um, Sometimes they just say, this is fine. It's just good to talk. Sometimes they say, could you talk to me more about like, like when has God shown up for you? Or have you ever faced something? and sometimes they want to know so if they want to know something then i'll interact with whatever they've asked of me but i don't start by assuming that i know what that person in front of me needs i assume that they actually are a good guide to tell me what they need and i think that um i think that especially in like this world kinds of settings or like sometimes it's like in friends we just don't want them to stay sad or stay struggling we want to do something that will contribute positively but we don't realize always the amount that our presence is a positive contribution the amount of times that i've had a student come and sit with me and like just come to my office and start to tell me a story about what's going on i had a student come to me a couple years ago sat in my room and said I just need to tell you that my dad and my son died the same week. And I came here from another country. and I'm devastated, but I'm not supposed to be devastated because my church says that I'm supposed to be okay because God is good and everything is in his order and I am really struggling. And I sat with him and I said, I'm so sorry. And we sat and cried together. And he came to me a couple weeks later and he said, thank you for not trying to answer me. I just needed to be sad. And I haven't been able to. Thank you for letting me. So it's not in every situation that that's what someone asks of us. Sometimes someone wants a solution or an answer from us. So if they ask me a question, sometimes I'll try and answer that question. But I think just even starting with the assumption that is not necessarily why someone has come to sit with me, and that that's not the only thing I can give to them, um, is really important. I think there was a second thing. How do we sit with people, like our friends? Especially,
2: and- yeah, someone really close to you or loved one that you know is a righteous person, but now suffering severe illness or impending death.
0: So something that I think can be very helpful is sometimes to acknowledge that things are unfair that, you're, that like you're genuinely with this person in the things that are hard. Sometimes, um, it depends a little bit on who you're talking to and what the situation is. Because one of the things I say is that we, if you look across scripture, there's lots of different ways that God responds to suffering. I've talked about one of them. But actually, sometimes God gives what seems like a response sometimes God just shows up sometimes um, sometimes God gives a full explanation from a prophet and I think about like when are I in what moment am I in so it's those of you who come tomorrow will hear this story again that's okay I repeat myself a lot um but um I a student come to me one of the first times I taught this class and they said um it's a pastor and he said I had two families both lost children in the same year And I tried to give both of them
1: answers
0: Mm. and I gave them the same answer so the answer I gave them was God is in control and one of those families was like thank you I just needed to know that God was in control and the other family said how dare you say that God killed my child so when we sit with someone, part of it is actually also really actually trying to meet what we know of them. So sometimes the answer to the question is like two, I can't give it like one set answer of what that looks like, right? You actually know your family member in a way that I don't know your family member. Yes? So I think about the moments with my husband. I love my husband very much. My husband has been through a lot. My husband came out of abuse. He's okay for me to say. that. My husband came out of abuse, an abusive family. When I watch what that's done to him, I have different responses depending upon what moment he's in. And I try to basically figure out what moment are you in? Sometimes I ask, like, what, what moment are you in right now? I don't usually use that language, but I say something like, so is this a moment where what you want from me is, and then I give like a list, right? So, <laughs> would you, and sometimes I'm like, would That's you, what I do
2: with my wife. <laughs> what do you need to hear?
1: <laughs>
0: would you like to make you a pie? And he's like, yes, I would like a pie. <laughs> <laughs> Know. Like sometimes, or make like a cup of coffee, that's the easier one. But like sometimes it's like cheesecake, yes, thank you. Um, and sometimes it's, I'm like, do you want to talk about why you feel the way you do, right? And sometimes he's like, I can't. And that's true, I think, for all of the people we love. Sometimes when someone's journeying towards death, sometimes they want to talk about it. Sometimes we want to run away because we're going to talk about something that's going to be really hard for us to hear. Sometimes they want to talk, no, I really actually want to talk to you about being afraid of dying. Can you sit with me while I talk about that? And that's hard for us if we really love them, right? Because we might not be ready to have a conversation with them about them. dying. But sometimes they just want us to be sitting close to them and just, it's okay that they're where they are and how they are in this moment. And sometimes that grace and that peace and that rest is what they need. And so being able to sort of ask them, what, what do you need in this? I know it's the same answer I just gave, but I actually think that it's a really valid question. And with someone you know well, sometimes the list of possibilities that you can offer. Like, here's the services I can give you in this moment. Um, I know there are at least five things at different times that have been helpful to you. Are any of those what you are looking for in this moment? And maybe one of them, they're like, that would be great. So one of my best friends, she and I have this like set of things. And we're in a hard space where we just offer these things to each other. And we're just like, I can offer you these things. Uh, Which of these would be helpful? And if none of them would, give me another suggestion and I'm happy to give that to you. Sometimes people know that, sometimes they don't. But even just kind of entering into it with like, there's more than one way that I can interact with you right now and I wanna do the right one. One thing I've also figured out, um, so I do work with uh, indigenous communities. So I do work with um, people who've been through like severe trauma and, walk with them through some of that um, with kind of different kinds of work in the city around that. And uh, sometimes situations happen. One of my, um, one of our elders, one of our dear friends, uh, her daughter was just murdered. And I just said to her, I'm like, I love you. I want you to know that you are deeply loved and I don't know what to do right now but I want to do whatever you need right now. Like, I can't change how awful this situation is for you. But I can love you. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm probably going to mess up in how I love you, but I want to help whatever way I can. And sometimes even just acknowledging that in itself can be part of being able to sit with someone and help them, whatever that is. Just one last comment on that. It is not about me getting it right. Because sometimes in a situation, I'm thinking, how can I be the hero?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is not what this is about. If I think in those terms, I am more likely to not be helpful. Whereas if I think in terms of, I have very little, and I want to give you whatever little I have in a way that is meaningful to you. Let me know what the little is I can help with. And often that can be really helpful. Because if I come in and I'm like, I got all the answers. That's often not going to actually. Did I see a?
1: There was a hand on the, I was like, what's oh, my arm? <laughs> it's stuck in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um. I was just wondering if you could speak to the conversation at the beginning of Job between God and the accuser. I think it's from what well, I remember. I don't remember it exactly, but that word has always been troubling to me. Yeah, um, <laughs> in the way uh, God sort of seems a bit lazy there or something with the way mm-hmm. the accuser
0: has or whatever. And, and I know just wondering if, if you yeah. speak to that at all.
1: I okay. you'll notice I
0: kind of just like, I'll just skip right <laughs> over <there." laughs> I will say this. I think of the book of Job, I think the hardest part for me when I read it is that part of the book of Job. Mm-hmm. Because I actually struggle, I personally struggle with the beginning of that book and trying to figure out exactly what's happening and what do I do with it. Um, part of it is, it is very strange. Like we don't have a lot of interactions where heavenly creatures or heavenly beings have interactions with each other that we get to see is a pretty unusual thing as a book. Um, Yeah, so generally we don't have this moment where like the curtain is raised and we see the heavenly spaces and they're having a conversation and certainly not between the accuser and God, mm-hmm. there's like not a lot of places where this happens. And so um, part of the dynamics is actually trying to understand what is going on there. And it it kind of plays into, I don't know what your name is. Laurel. Laurel, so Laurel's question about like, what kind of writing is this, plays a role in this. When I feel more comfortable with that section, it's when I think of the book as not trying to represent history but rather trying to set up a scenario so that we can explore these questions. Mm -hmm. If I think of it that way, it helps me a little bit more to deal with that part of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it explains uh, why this scenario happens in the way that it does. Mm -hmm. It basically creates a framing device for the whole. Story. Mm -hmm. So if I think of it that way, as a framing device for an exploration that the best of the book wants to give us, I don't struggle with it as much. Mm -hmm. If I think of it as like, God had this real situation, he decided to do this to this person, then I struggle with it more. Now, all of you can decide whether or not you think that's a cop out or a avoidance technique that I have, um, but I it is, it's kind of where I land when I try to deal with that, just because I actually find it to be a really complicated question. It does uh, lead to some other discussions. So how we think about the heavenly court is also interesting. So we tend to picture God like by himself. And sometimes if we're really thinking about it, we think of like God, and maybe some angels, but in the ancient world, it was very common to think of God as king and having like almost like a a court around him, kind of like how kings have uh, like attendance, right? And so some of the language that we get where we have scenes where God is interacting, say with a messenger, like an angel, it's kind of in that format. So then the question is like, how, how are the heavenly realms Related to each other. So, where is the accuser? Yeah. So, is the accuser always standing here? About how far away is God in this conversation? And those are like questions that scholars ask as they try to wrestle with this section, uh, because it is it's it is again, we don't have a lot to compare it to. So, the closest thing we compare it to are other scenes where we have these kind of like heavenly interactions. Um. But there aren't that many of them. And so, yeah. So that's my kind of vague answer, but like at least a little bit of an answer to it, so.
3: Would it be an Old Testament parable then?
0: Possibly. I mean, poor Job as a book. <laughs> I mean, poor Job is Job, too. Um, but poor Job is a book. So Job is the possibly the hardest book in the entire Bible to date, like to know when it was. People have dated... Job as the earliest thing we have and the latest thing we have. Mm-hmm. So some people think Job was written like before the Pentateuch. Other people think that Job was written like right before Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's thousands of years, people, like thousands mm-hmm. of years. Um, and it's in part because it's really, really hard. There's so much in it that's strange. Um, and so it makes it hard um to 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 say what kind of genre is it, like what's what is what's going on in it like if if it is more like a play so let's go with that for a second if it's more like a play then we start with the curtains open and the scene is set and i think i'm i'm going to use a really anachronistic uh, example so i apologize but you get you get these scenes in shakespeare where um it starts and it says in fair Verona where we set our scene yes because someone gets up kind of explains the scenario of what the rest of the play you're about to see is yes Mm -hmm. interesting interaction that's at the beginning and the end of the book like the structure of the book begins and ends with a structure that is nowhere else in the rest of the book Mm -hmm. the accuser doesn't come back and hang out or do anything else except at the very beginning and then god comes at the end and the language of the beginning and the end mirror each other almost word for word And then it just disappears for the rest of the book. So is this the open open act seen the beginning? Uh, Here is the scenario. And now we have it play out. Behold, it plays out for 40 chapters. And then conclusion. And now at the end of our play, here's what has happened. Is that what's going on? Is least one way of possibly reading it? There's other ways of reading it. People have read it as functioning kind of like a parable. People have read it kind of functioning sort of like um, more like an extended metaphor to use uh, Laurel's example. Uh, People have suggested this straight up happened and everything in it is completely true exactly as it stands. And uh, I'm not sure of that one. That one I always am like, there's there's some structuring happening here for sure. Mm. Um, But certainly those are all different possibilities for how we might read it. I often say that as we try to figure it out, I just try to balance all the different factors to say which seems most likely. To me, the kind of play approach seems quite likely, but it also has an element that feels sort of like a parable. So we think of Jesus' parables just as a nice comparison. Jesus tells stories that include things that are real in real life, like a farmer goes into his field. But Jesus is not, there's not a particular farmer that Jesus is talking about when he does that. Yes. But you know, he's talking about just in general, when farmers go into the fields, this is a scenario. And he'll sell stories like there was a king, and then something happens with the king. So at least one way of reading it is sort of in that way. Um, and then some people have read it that way. So
2: would would in the New Testament though, um, when G one well, his disciples say, Hey, how about this blind guy? Mm-hmm. Uh was it his parents or him that's yeah. in? Uh, which is kind of a silly question because he was born that way, uh, but wouldn't that be kind of pointing towards a New Testament anal or er, allegory of the same per- same idea uh, as Job? But it'd be
1: a real person because that was it's a
0: real person that they're interacting with. Yeah, so it's interesting because that scenario that we have in uh, I believe in John's Gospel. Um, it's interesting. I think it's John eight if I remember correctly where that happens um when in that section it's very interesting because it is based on the same theological understanding that the friends of Job have Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so either it was the person themselves or the parents of the person which is like the inversion of what happens with Job right it's either Job or it's his kids but frankly, saying it that way is, is identical because it's you're just at the second generation. You're talking about the kid rather than talking about Job, who's a parent. Is everyone following me on the logic here? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is actually that the theology of Job is the same theology that they continue to believe mm-hmm. into the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says neither. Right. So Jesus is doing a similar process of um, questioning that logic as we see in the book of Job. And so I would say, yeah, there's like a parallel, certainly. Um, we would think that in that situation there's a real person that, you know, then goes to the temple and then has a whole issue with the temple and there's all these interactions that happen um, that Job may or may not be in in the sense that, that same kind of real person, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly it's the same theology that we see playing out for sure. Right, right. So, yeah.
2: We'll just have one or two more questions
0: see one down here. Hi. Hi. So I thought this before and I thought this might be a nice place to ask sure. but um how would it look if we look at Job as a sacrifice to his surroundings? Mm-hmm. So we see that the theology of his friends are wrong and probably the community that he was in like they really benefited from Job's wealth but when he was when he was
1: no longer wealthy none of those people came back and visited or took care of him. Yeah. So how would it
0: look if like God took us as an opportunity to give self salvation to the surroundings of Job who were probably living in a way that wasn't quite right but they didn't even know it. Mm, That's interesting as I think that's interesting about I like something I really like about that reading or that question is that One of the things we tend to do is treat Job like an individual, but in the system he's in, like they would much more think of Job and how he contributes to his community and the dynamics of that. So I think that there's some really fascinating things to ask about. So why have the friends, why do the friends ultimately give up on Job? And how does that relate to the degree to which Job was sponsoring or not sponsoring them with all of his parts, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And is there a way in which the story is a community story, not just a joke story, which I think is actually a really interesting way of approaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there'd be implications for that. Um, I think the interactions with the friends, like I would wanna do closer, and I'm like, oh,
1: here's what I wanna do with that.
0: <laughs> um, I wanna do closer analysis on what we see in the friend statements. One thing that's really interesting though is Job 28, Job 28, I talked about how it's related to wisdom, right? But what's in it is actually about the acquisition of wealth. So it uh, is comparing the tendency to do mining or to like go underground to try and find things that are meaningful, but then really just finding wealth that actually doesn't give meaning. Um, so it'd be really interesting to think about how that's related to see in uh, 3 to 27, where the friends are interacting with Joe, and if there is connection there, because I think it could actually be an interesting way of reading it to maybe see something else that we're not seeing. So smart, good, interesting.
2: Future scholar. Here
0: you go. <laughs>
2: Present. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, we can end there. I know there's probably other questions, but um, thank you so much for your time. And also, um, before you clap, um, that you have two more lectures. Mm-hmm. And so you'll be giving that at the Conference of the Church of the Nazarene. So if you have any questions about that or interest, talk to Kathleen, mm-hmm. not to Beth and uh... i can
0: say that just so you guys know what the topics are um our first of those talks in the morning will be around how the psalms and the gospels show us ways of thinking about suffering Hmm. the second half of the day will be how again the psalms and the gospels show us ways to think about um, a hope that is framed with our understanding of suffering and so um so it it, gets the resurrection and talk about it but we'll talk about it how the framing of the cross affects what what how we think about the, that hope in the midst of something.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so that's what tomorrow will look like for those of you who are interested. So. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm.